By the time you read this, you'll be older than you remember. The official name for your liver spots is hyperpigmented lengitines. The official anatomy word for a wrinkle is a rietide. Those creases in the top half of your face, the rietides plowed across your forehead and around your eyes, this is dynamic wrinkling, also called hyperfunctional facial lines, caused by the movement of underlying muscles. Most wrinkles in the lower half of your face are static rietides, caused by sun and gravity. Let's look in a mirror. Really look at your face. Look at your eyes. Look at your mouth. This is what you think you know best. Your skin comes in three basic layers. What you can touch is your stratum corneum, a layer of flat, dead skin cells pushed up by the new cells under them. What you feel, that greasy feeling, is your acid mantle, the coating of oil and sweat that protects you from germs and fungus. Under that is your dermis. Below the dermis is a layer of fat. Below the fat are the muscles of your face. Maybe you remember all this from art school, from Figure Anatomy 201, but then maybe not. When you pull up your upper lip, when you show that one top tooth, the one the museum guard broke, this is your levator labi superioris muscle at work, your sneer muscle. Let's pretend you smell some old stale urine. Imagine your husband's just killed himself in your family car. Imagine you have to go out and sponge his piss out of the driver's seat. Pretend you still have to drive this stinking rusted junk pile to work with everyone watching, everyone knowing because it's the only car you have. Does any of this ring a bell? My name is Rick Kleffel and welcome to the show. We've been listening to Chuck Polinick reading from his latest novel, Diary. He's the author of Lullaby and Fight Club and Fugitives and Refugees, a travel guide to his hometown of Portland. Welcome back, Chuck. Thank you very much, Rick. Last year, we talked about your interest in the horror genre, and you're back this year with a new and acclaimed horror novel, Diary. Yes. Give us a thumbnail setup for what the novel is about. Diary is a conspiracy horror, like Ira Levin used to write, where you take a social issue and you uh, you set someone in what seems like a wonderful, wonderful world until they find out that everything in this world, everything over the course of their entire life, has been geared to groom them for a terrible purpose. Now, this novel has been called a little bit more reader-friendly and mainstream than your other novels. Did you deliberately trim back, or was it just the way the story worked out? No, it is a little more reader-friendly, and it is a little more... Mm, seductive, because since September 11th, I think people are more likely to hear social satire or be receptive to it if it is cloaked in charm or in uh, in something they're more familiar with, less threatened by. Well, your prose is certainly charming. It really carries the novel effortlessly into the reader's mind. The narrative is very easy to read. It's a compulsive page-turner couched as a coma diary. But the structure is also very complex with the first and third person layers, the referencing to the author to herself. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's the, the first book I've ever written in the third person, but it's a really, really voicey third person, you know, that's constantly judging and making evaluations. So you, you get a sense that there's not an omniscient third person sort of God type narrator, that there is someone writing this book. And it's not really until the very last page that you find out who has written this supposedly third-person book. You bring the reader close to 
Misty Wilmot and simultaneously distance the reader from her as well, don't you? Do I? <laughs> well, to my mind, at least, because of the the diary narrative. You're in her mind, yet she's looking at herself. Right. It's always a lot more, I think, heartbreaking when you can have a character talk about themselves in the third person. I think my favorite scene in Fight Club was when Marla Singer was being drugged from her apartment by Tyler Durden while the paramedics were going down the, the hallway to try to revive her from a suicide attempt. And she shouts at them, don't bother trying to save her. She's toxic human waste. She's not worth the effort. And it's heartbreaking because it's a character saying awful things about themselves in the third person. And so much of Diary is that. It's Misty talking about herself, berating herself in the third person. When you're creating these layers of narrative, you're working almost like a painter or a musician, aren't you? Right. You know, I always feel more like someone who mixes music, like in a, uh, a, in a dance club. Right. It is very much like sampling and mixing for different effects. It, it comes across like that, like a Philip Glass uh, composition with a hypnotic repetition. Could you talk about the kind of writing process involved in creating this prose? Are you cutting and pasting on a word processor? Well, first I'm sort of cutting and pasting <laughs> in a notebook. I, uh, I take all my notes and I do all my research and I come up with so much of the books that are just written longhand in notebooks. And then I number the paragraphs so I can sort of tell what needs to go against what, so that you can have the crisis, then you can have sort of the recovery, then you can have the greater crisis, then you can have the recovery. And the last thing I ever do is to actually key those numbered paragraphs into the word processor. Um, because once I start seeing them in like Courier or New Times Roman, it looks <laughs> a little too finished, and it's harder to monkey with it after you see it in typeset. So you're literally cut and pasting these books together, aren't you? Oh, and, and then constantly, even right through the third draft. You know, this book is almost nothing like it was in the first draft. It was an entirely different book the first go-round. Are you reaching, in doing this uh, cut and paste, are you trying to reach to something of the center beyond what painting and music and writing are, trying to get to something... Uh, more nebulous at the center of what is creation for you? Right, exactly. I, you know, to be really honest, I would have written a book about a writer, but I hate those. I hate books <laughs> about writers. I hate movies about movie people. I hate singers singing about singing. It just seems a little too masturbatory. So I made it, you know, I explored the creative process through a painter uh, just so I could be a little less you know, navel-gazing about this. Well, you also have a very intriguing way of mixing nonfiction with your fiction, and I guess this comes with uh, some of your cut and paste. You accumulate a huge number of facts. It seems like you must have gone to Anatomy 101, Contractor's Lore, Art History. Do you just call those facts and stack them on note cards and start pasting them together, or how do you do that? That, that is part of it, but it's really it's like notebooks, just pages and pages of notes on any one subject. And one notebook might be the body of information that creates the character of Misty, and one is the body of information that creates the character of her comatose husband, Peter. So each character starts with a body of research because it's that research, that experience, and education that really colors 
how they see the world, and it colors how they're going to describe the world around them. Because a six-foot man to you is not the same thing as a six-foot man to me. Our experience is going to define that person differently, describe that person differently. So I need to figure out the, the education of each person in the entire book before I can ever portray anything through their eyes. Now, do you create the characters and then select their occupations and then start grafting the, the data you find onto the characters, or do you just start picking up the data and saying, I'm interested in contractor's lore? Well, really with Diary, it started with, with when my father and my brother and I worked on houses when I was little. My father, before we sealed up a wall, he would make us always write our names and leave pictures and a newspaper and a bottle of whiskey inside the wall. Because he knew, he knew what kind of joy people feel when they pull a wall down in the far future and they find that stuff. They're so thrilled for it. And he also knew that, that he was going to die and that we were going to die. And from a really early age, like five years old, I knew that this was about death. This, this was an effort to transcend death and to try to connect with the future and to sort of tell them that we had lived in the place that they were now living in and that we had created the world that they had, in, had inherited it. And so that's such an archetypal little story that every time I went to a party and told that story, a hundred people would tell me their stories about either leaving things inside walls or finding things inside walls. So that was really the germ of the whole book and the whole sort of quest for if you were going to leave a message for yourself in the next lifetime, how would you do it? Well, that's very interesting. And how about the art history? Did you uh, study the art history? Was that when you decided you didn't want to write a book about a writer? Right. I, uh, I hung out at art college. I met a lot of artists. A lot of my friends are artists. My sister is an artist. And so it's all of those people, those professors, that really told me everything I put in. Now, the supernatural aspects of this novel are, are pretty interesting, and the way you handle them is interesting. Could you talk about that? Well, really the, the supernatural is going on throughout, but the narrator is so well educated that she is so constantly trying to explain the supernatural through sociological stuff and through uh, anatomical stuff and through every form of sort of cognitive education stuff that she has, every tool that she's been given throughout her education, uh, when in fact, you know, the real reason is that it is metaphysical. And she's just not willing to see that. In, in a way, her education, her sort of cognitive, the Hindus would call it her rational monkey mind, blinds her to the real horror of what's about to happen to her. She thinks she can explain it. She thinks she can control it because she can explain it when, in fact, it overwhelms her because she refuses to see what's actually happening. And, and this brings us back to the language you use throughout the novel, that simple hypnotic repetition is like, in many ways, reading a textbook when you talk about the right tides and the wrinkles and, and stuff. Because, uh, well, boy, in a certain way, I try to write as blandly as possible and to use as small a vocabulary as possible because I don't want the writing ever, ever to distract from the story. My stories are so intense and there is so much going on and the plot is so fast. There's a plot point, you know, every couple pages that I don't want the writing to ever be any kind of a distraction and call any attention to itself. 
So my writing is bland on purpose. Interesting. Could you talk a little bit about nonfiction horror, the way you use these um, descriptions of the, the of the people in a coma in particular are just absolutely chilling, and it's all very simple and matter-of-fact. Well, you know, I have a real problem writing sort of metaphysical horror because there are so many things in the world right now that are genuinely physically horrific, like the way you do end up in long-term vegetative care, the way the body does pull in on itself and end up looking very much like a burn victim's body. They sort of pull into what they call the pugilist position, uh, where the hands are sort of knotted up in fists in front of the face, and and long-term, you become just this fantastically gruesome sort of living mummy. And the fact that there are greater and greater numbers of these people on back wards throughout America uh, who will live long, sort of mummified lives because we have the capacity to save them after motorcycle accidents, but we just can't bring them back from their comas. Diary is an unabashed horror novel. Why are you trying to frighten your readers? Oh, because everybody wants to be scared, and because I love horror novels. I grew up reading those Stephen King books, and uh, my God, those Edgar Allan Poe books, and those books were just like heroin. I love those books. And uh, and if I could spend the rest of my life writing those books, I can't imagine anything more fun. Wow, that's great to hear. Horror offers readers a chance to see their own fears externalized so that you can actually can put a stake through the heart of it. Well, and Ira Levin, I've always held up as like one of the masters of taking a social issue that we cannot be with and then putting it inside of a metaphor that we can be with. So in a way... You know, he's getting us ready for the battle over abortion rights by giving us Rosemary's Baby 10 years before, in which a woman loses all control over the reproductive process of her body and is used. You know, he's getting us ready for the backlash against feminism 20 years before by giving us the Stepford Wives, in which, as women in Stepford begin to organize a chapter of, of now, their husbands kill them and replace them with big-breasted robots. You know, Ira Levin has consistently been 10 to 20 years ahead of the social curve in recognizing social crises and giving us a metaphor by which to sort of be with them and not be paralyzed by them. Why is humor so often a byproduct of horror? Because Ira Levin is quite funny at times, and you, this book is hysterical often. Well, because... Oh, my God, Ira Levin is so funny in the front end. First of all, it's really seductive. It really makes you put, let your guard down. You become so fully involved because, because you've laughed and you've really been pulled in and, and you're really, really sort of trusting the writer. Um, and on another level, laughter in the short term sort of allows you to release tension. You know, it's, it's the archetypal scene in the horror movie. They go looking for the knife-wielding killer. They think the killer's about to jump out, and it's just the cat. So we laugh. And so you've built up a small amount of stress, and then you've released it with the cat. And then a few moments later, they actually do encounter the horror. And so by relieving the stress early, you allow a really greater stress after that. How does the inclusion of the supernatural the surreal, the unreal, infect and affect 
your connection to the reader? Boy, I think my interpretation of the supernatural is such a really tight, rational interpretation of the supernatural. My books are really, there's no sort of amorphous evil force out there. It's always a very sort of well-constructed machine behind the scenes that's doing something for a purpose. Um, I have maybe the most grounded paranormal stuff I've ever seen because in a way it's really hard for me to sort of get excited about an amorphous mass under a sheet or something like that, some sort of great evil entity. No, I really, really want to have a, a clockwork evil out there. Um, and in a way, I'm trying to be Ira Levin and recognize social issues like gentrification and immigration and, and how one class of people tends to you know, embrace, use, and destroy another class of people in order to maintain its own wealth. So really, you know, I want to be Ira Levin. So you're dealing with some of this, the same issues in a way that uh, Raymond Chandler dealt with in Red Rain when, when, the, uh, when they're trying to take over the, a neighborhood, an actual attack on a neighborhood, on a lower-class neighborhood of people. Could you talk a little bit how gentrification plays into this novel? Well, you know, what's happening in the, in the novel is that there's this isolated, really beautiful, beautiful offshore island, and... and it's sort of populated by these very genteel, old, wealthy families that have become sort of down at the heels. They've exhausted their wealth, and they're now having to open the island up to sort of a class of nouveau riche, jet-setting tourist people. And they're sort of having to, to create a service economy to support and embrace these people that they really secretly loathe. And eventually they it's revealed that they have a way of destroying these people that they sort of bring in to their trap on this every hundred year basis. They attract them, they destroy them, they in, in a way replenish their wealth in this process. And in a way it's probably what people in Vail, Colorado dream of doing or people in <laughs> Acapulco dream of doing or even people in Portland, Oregon. As, or Santa Cruz. Right, all these smaller towns that are incredibly beautiful become sort of bought up and gentrified, and the, and the locals, the natives, find themselves forced into a service, service economy and forced out of ever owning property in the places they were born. So it's something that's happening in small towns all over America. Last year, you called yourself a minimalist. Now, how many simple layers of narrative can you stack before your minimalism morphs into something else? And if so, what does it become? Well, Minimalism is really reliant on obeying certain very, very specific laws while you write. And you can have as many stacks as you want, but each layer has to obey those laws. There are things you cannot do. You cannot use, um, you cannot use vague verbs. You can't, no one can think. No one can believe. No one can um, use an adverb. No one walks into a room angrily. Everything has to be unpacked in a very sort of cinematic way. You can't use an abstract. You can't say it's a 100-degree day because that's different. That's something different to everyone. You can't, uh, boy, you can't vary your themes. You can't bring in enormous numbers of new characters. You really stay with the very small number of themes and characters, and you just portray those as many different ways as you can. Think of a skipper's seafood commercial, okay? They can't just show us a fish. So they show us 
the napkin with a logo. They show us the sign. They show us people drinking stuff out of a cup with a logo. They show us the restaurant. They show us the fish. They show us peating. They show people putting fish in their mouth. They show us the fish as many different ways as they can. And so minimalist writing is just basically sort of telling the same story, the same melody, and building on it, but it's always the same basic melody. When you choose to write in a genre, to invade it, so to speak, from a literary middle ground, you run the risk of repeating something other writers within the genre have done before, of thinking you've invented the wheel when it's already been around for a while. What writers did you read to familiarize yourself with the horror genre? I read a lot of um, Stephen King short stories because I really I adore short stories. And uh, short stories get so much done in such a finite number of pages. Uh, I read a lot of Ira Levin, and all of his horror is really short. It's almost like novella horror. Um, I read Carrie, Stephen King's first book, because it, it is incredibly short compared to his subsequent books. Um, and it gets so much done in uh, such few, you know so few pages. Um, Dennis Etchison? Yes, Dennis Etchison. I said it right. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, those are the people I read. Your novel carries the subtitle, Where Do You Get Your Inspiration? In a way that's sort of a, uh, making fun of myself because that's the big question writers always get and they don't ever really have an answer for. Um, and so it's attacking that question head on and uh, all, you know, attacking you know, where does the muse come from? You know, maybe it doesn't come from a good place. Maybe these ideas are ideas that are being sent to us for a, a malevolent purpose. They're not the best thing we could be doing with our time. So your muse comes from pain. Right. I, uh, it, it always takes something really awful in my life, somebody dying or an illness or an injury, to make me sit down and actually write because I just hate to sit in one place. You've also got a travel guide out titled Fugitives and Refugees. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came to pass? It's really wild. <laughs> the, uh, the people at Crown are doing a series called uh, A Walkthrough, A Walkthrough Blank, and they ask different writers to write about the cities that they, w- that they know well. And I've lived in Portland for 20 years, so they asked me to do Portland. But the problem is Portland was going to sit on the shelf next to Rome and Washington, D.C., and New York, and London. And so I really had to think how to portray Portland, Oregon, so that it could really defend itself against these cities. And I sat down with Catherine Dunn, the writer of Geek Love, and we drank a lot of wine. And Catherine said that that Portland is where all the fugitives and refugees of the United States end up. Because first they go to the West Coast, and if they still don't fit in, they end up spiraling into Portland because it's so cheap to live there. And so the book became about portraying, doing portraits of, of these people who are doing extraordinary things like, you know, organizing sex workers or building self-cleaning houses, uh, uh, doing these sort of anarchistic um, social theater, street theater, uh, just all these really odd, amazing characters who've come from all over the country and settled in Portland to do their crazy thing. One of the things about this book is it's flat-out hilarious. Your biographical interludes uh, made me laugh till I cried. I read them to my wife, and we had to pull over and stop because she couldn't handle it. 
Could you talk, will we expect some humor from you, a comedy? Oh my gosh, you know, I sort of held back on the funny stuff in Diary because I didn't want to sort of have that same tone book after book. Um, the one I'm working on now that'll come out in 2005 is is going to go right back to that incredibly dark funniness that uh, that has you laughing even while your heart is broken because that's the most powerful kind of writing I think there is. We're going to have to wait a, a year and a half? Well, I've got a book of nonfiction um, essays coming oh. out next spring, and some of those are funny and some of those are pretty straight. Uh, but my next work of fiction will be 2005. In uh, Fugitives and Refugees, you brought up Catherine Dunn, author of Geek Love. I, I'm among many people who are waiting for the next novel, and you mentioned she's working on it. When is it going to happen? That boy, this is why Catherine no longer gives <laughs> interviews. I would imagine so. Because she hates that question. Uh, she's told me that uh, that the new book is giving her nightmares. And well, that's she's, good. She's very heavily researching serial killers. So uh, I got the impression that it was something mm, along the lines of American Psycho, only darker. Uh, I don't know how you get that dial beyond black. But <laughs> if, if anybody can do it, Catherine can do it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Geek Love and its influence on you, if any. Well, you know, I went to Catherine because Geek Love is really the biggest book that was set in Portland, Oregon. And it's just such an amazing book in which, you know, two people come up with an idea. They're a failed circus sideshow family, and they need to boost ticket sales. So they decide to um, to have more children and then to take pesticides and irradiate themselves and try to give birth to the most deformed, disfigured, effective circus sideshow children that they can. And in anyone else's hands, this would have been a horrific nightmare of a novel. But Catherine makes it funny and heartbreaking and really a story about a family instead of a story about birth defects. Uh, and it's just amazing. You know, it sort of struck me that you can go these scary, incredibly dark places but you can go there if you go there laughing. So that was a breakthrough. You have an official website. Will you be producing content for the web, short stories for magazines? or? Boy, I'm doing short stories for magazines. In fact, the short story that I'm touring with, that I'm reading right now while I do diary, the one that's making people fall down like <laughs> Nubian sleeping goats, we've had two or three people pass out at every reading. Um, we've had people vomit. We've had people run out weeping. Um, it's such an amazingly funny but heartbreaking story. But it looks like Playboy is going to be buying it for their 50th anniversary issue later this year. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to be sort of running uh, trial chapters of a, of a writing book, a book about writing, that are going to be posted on the chuckpolinick.net fan site. It's actually Dennis Widmere's site. It's not my site. Um, and Dennis is going to post these chapters for two months at a time so that um, people can learn the different distinctions of minimalism and be able to sort of peer review each other's work and, and work on exercises so that they really understand and can demonstrate these different techniques. Can you tell us a little bit about the film of you? It's an interview with you? Oh, the uh, um, documentary that was made right, right. at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, it was at a conference based on my work, and uh, there was a crew there, and they were very nice, and that's as much as I know about it. 
And what about film projects coming up based on your work? Uh, Choke looks like it will be the next movie to go to book to go to movie. Um, they have a second draft. They keep rebuying the option. Uh, they seem really happy with the second draft. And it's the people who made Requiem for a Dream, Bandera Entertainment. So I think they're probably going to start filming it next year, if not sooner, because I think they're casting it now. Uh, Invisible Monsters has been sold and it's in development. And right now we're negotiating for Diary. And the folks who made American Beauty uh, are the people that we're negotiating with. Wow, well, that sounds fantastic. We've been speaking with Chuck Polinick. His latest book is Diary. His latest nonfiction is Fugitives and Refugees, A Walk Around Portland. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Rick.